But we're going to stop and slow it down this week and just do one chapter. This is Job's last speech, if you will. And if you've been with us here through our study in the book of Job, you know Job's been talking through his, to his three friends and debating what's going on. Job's three friends have made it pretty clear that they believe that all this is happening to Job because of his wickedness and that he has deserved this. Job has maintained his innocence, and this has kind of been going back and forth, this fight, this argument between this. Finally, here in Job 31, we have the final defense, if you will, of Job. And then starting next week, we're introduced to a new character, Elihu, which we'll get into in a little bit. And then finally, in Job 38, God makes his appearance. And I tell you, that's when the book really takes a turn. Now, this is Job's final thoughts. If you've been with us for the previous studies on this, you know what Job has said. He's maintained his innocence. He said he has not deserved this, all these bad things that are happening to him. And you remember, we said we'd say this every week. Job doesn't know what's going on. He's not privy to chapters 1 and 2. We are. So Job doesn't know what's going on, but yet what you see here tonight, Job is so sure that he has not earned or deserved any of this. And this is what we're going to get into. So Job 31. Now, we're going to finish with tonight with communion. Normally, you guys know that we finish with the time of prayer on Wednesday. We get up as a body and pray over things. But we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to finish with communion. And this is why. Because really what you have here tonight is a great chapter for us to stop and say, let's take a look at our own walks with Christ. Job's going to go through about ten different things here, which he says he's innocent in. And it's fascinating that this book was written thousands of years ago, but yet these same ten things still affect us today. This is a great message for us just to stop and as we go through these ten things to say, okay, Lord, am I struggling with this? Would I pass this test? And it's pretty straightforward on a lot of this. But before we get into it, we have to make sure that our hearts are ready and our hearts are prepared. See, one of the attributes of uh, communion is it says that we're supposed to examine ourselves before we partake of this. So through this next message, I want you to examine yourself as we go through each one of these little topics. Stop and ask yourself, Lord, how am I doing with this? Is there an area of unconfessed sin in my life with this that I need to give over to you? Then, Lord, I give it to you. Is this something I'm struggling with? Then, Lord, I give it to you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 that we're supposed to take a look at ourselves to make sure that we are not disqualified as being a believer. Because there's so often that we are talking the talk, but are we really walking the walk? This is a message tonight to stop and ask that. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O Lord, and try me. See if there is any iniquity in me, and then lead me into the way of everlasting. So all that being said, examine ourselves. Lord, is there any iniquity in me? I don't want to be disqualified. You know, if you look here in Job 31, verse 4, Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? There is nothing hidden before God. See, I can come up here tonight and fool you guys. I can make it sound real good. You don't know what I've struggled with this week. You don't know the stupid choices I've made. You don't know the words that have come out of my mouth. Because I can just come up here for the next half hour and look good. Here's the catch. I can't do that before the Lord. I can't. Has been said many times, a broken clock tells the correct time twice a day. And if you only see the clock those two times a day, it looks good and it sounds good. I want you, through this message, to honestly stop and say, Lord... Okay, search me, try me, examine me. And Lord, I want to confess to you those things I'm struggling with. So we're going to do this again. We're going to pray. And this is going to be a simple prayer. Lord, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. Your Holy Spirit knows us better than anybody. Lord, search us, try us, know us. And Lord, give us an open heart as we go through this to really seek you to be the people you 
have called us to be. Lord, leave no stone unturned. Open every closet door in our lives and take a look deep into us. And through your loving Holy Spirit, convict us of those things that we need to be changed. And then, Lord, as you convict us, grow us, help us through you and your strength in your name. Amen. Please remember as we go through this message, one of the most loving things God can ever do to you is convict you. He doesn't condemn us. Remember that, Romans 8 1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But one of the most loving things that God can do is convict us. Is to say, these are the areas we need to work on. And that's what he's going to do. So what's the first one? Let's just jump right into it. This is Job's final defense. Job 31 verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then shall I look upon a young woman? Let's just jump right into it. Lust and adultery. That's the first thing he says. One translation says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I should not look to the left nor to the right. Job has said, I made a promise with myself that I'm not going to look at the young ladies. I'm not going to lust after them. I'm not saying this to make a joke. What were they wearing 4,000 years ago that Job had to be careful about, you know? I mean, I envision these gals being basically covered from head to toe. I don't know what Job saw. I mean, he saw a bit of an ankle bone. Maybe that, I don't know. But isn't it fascinating that Job, this, this man, this powerful, mighty man, if you remember all the way back at the beginning of our study in Job, Job's one of the big three. God named three. Daniel, Noah, and Job. He's one of the big three. And for Job to say, you know what? I have to make a promise with my eyes that I'm not going to let them wander. You've heard me say out here before, if a guy ever comes up to me and says that he does not struggle with looking at women, it either means he's dead or he's lying. It's a battle. And it's a battle that most of the time we men don't want to talk about. Job's going to talk about it. Thousands of years ago, he's going to talk about it. He even builds on it a little bit. Jump ahead to verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. He says, listen, I'm not hanging around with the neighbor's wives. I'm not hanging around with the other women. I'm not going to do this. Jesus took it one step further in Matthew chapter 5, where he says to even look after a woman, to lust after her in your heart, it's adultery. That's a pretty powerful statement when you stop and you think about that. And the society we live in today, there's all these images that are just a click away. They're on the TV. They're on the commercial. They're everywhere. Everywhere. And as men, we're called to keep ourselves pure. If you're not married, then you're supposed to not look at anybody. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. According to Thessalonians, you're supposed to look at every woman that you run into as a sister in Christ. And if they're not saved, look at them as a potential sister in Christ. If you are married, Proverbs makes it pretty clear. This is Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured with her love. That word enraptured with her love literally means be intoxicated. It means husbands, be drunk on your wife. That you love her so much, you're so enraptured with her, that she is the most amazing thing you've ever seen, and you just, you're almost as tipsy for your wife and love. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, that's God's original plan, right? So if that's God's original plan, if that's God's perfect plan, guess what Satan's going to do? He's going to put all these images everywhere you go, that you just can't even go to Walmart without seeing something. He's going to put commercials and TV shows because he knows that we live in a society where sex sells. He knows that. Now, what did Job struggle with thousands of years ago? I don't know. But it was enough for him to say that I have to make a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look upon the young women. And that word covenant is such a powerful word. 
Because that word covenant is not just, I made a deal, I made an agreement, I made a pact. We don't understand the word covenant. The word covenant literally means cutting up. It carried this idea that if I would make a covenant with you back during Bible times, we would take animals and cut them up and walk through them together with the understanding of this. If you broke the covenant or if I broke the covenant, then let that happen to us. Just as those animals were cut in two, if one of us would break this covenant, let it be cut in two. Job felt so strongly about this, he says, I don't want to look at the young women. I'm not going to do it. That's our first test as a believer. How are the eyes doing? You know, I got a little saying out here I use. If a guy ever comes up to me and, you know, and says, hey, I'm struggling with stuff. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? We got this little saying we'll do. I'll say, hey, how are the eyes doing? Just a simple little thing. How are the eyes doing? Are we keeping our eyes where they're supposed to be? Because we don't want to. We don't want to let our eyes stray to places we're not supposed to go. That's the first one. What's the next one? Jump ahead to verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way, or my heart walked after my own eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let my harvest be rooted out. The next passage there is this idea of deceit and dishonesty. What Job is saying, I have no deceit or dishonesty in my life. You know, you would think that would be pretty easy for us to say as believers, right? But it's amazing how it's easy to do a little white lie. It is. It's amazing how it's easy just to tell a little falsehood that makes us look a little bit better or something like that. You know, honey, I meant to get more around the house, but there was just a lot of things that popped up. Well, what are those things that popped up? Football game? I mean, it popped up. I didn't really, it just popped up. You know, you're, you're running late somewhere, and there's a, there's a, I thought it was funny too. Um, you know, you're running late somewhere, and there's a train, and you get stopped by the train for 10 seconds. But you're running 10 minutes late. Oh, I got stopped by a train. You know, those little deceits, those little dishonesty, those little white lies. And what Job is saying right here, he goes, listen, verse 5, if I'm walking with any falsehood, if there's any deceit in me, God judge me. God judge me. Is there anything where we sometimes just allow the half-truths to come out? You know the saying, a half-truth is half a lie. There's a lot of truth to that. Lord, help us to not have that deceit, to not have that dishonesty. And let our yes be yes and our no be no, that people can know us and people can trust us. What about the next one? Verse 13. If I despise the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did he not make me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? What Job is basically saying is, I have not abused authority as the, I had servants. We were both come from the same womb. He doesn't mean the same mom, but this idea we are both born that way. We're both born equals. And he's saying, have I ever abused any type of authority? Do I treat people like equals? Do I love them? Do I look down on anybody? I shared with you before that years ago at a pastor's conference, I was really convicted when they went to this passage in Corinthians. And they talked about how we're different parts of the body. And they talked about the little toe. And that really convicted me. And I just started praying, Lord, help me to love the little toes of the world. The people that it's easy to overlook. The people that it's really easy just to not care too much about. You know, it's just amazing how many times as a believer we've had a chance to witness and just share talking to waitresses or talking to cashiers. You know, the people that you don't even really think about too much. But you get this opportunity to talk to them because you're right there. It's like, Lord, whoever I run into today, let it be an opportunity to just tell them about you if you open a door. 
And whatever I'm doing, help us to be equals and help us to show love. If you have a position at work where you have subordinates under you, boy, then represent Jesus Christ to them. If you have any type of position at work, at home, at school, where you have younger brothers, younger siblings, I don't know what it is, but God has put you in some type of authority, you have an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ to them. I just read in John how Jesus, the creator of the universe, got down on hands and feet and washed feet. He washed feet. There was no hierarchy there. We never want to take that and abuse authority. And the next one here, what about the poor? Verse 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I have guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw, when I, saw I had help in the gate. He says, if I see somebody who is poor, I help them. We've lost that as a society, haven't we? When we see somebody who's poor, what do we do? We judge them first. Well, you know why they're poor? Because they obviously made poor choices in life. And so therefore, we automatically start to look down upon them and we automatically start to uh, understand what's going on because we have convinced ourselves in our mind, this is why they are that way. When we don't even know what their story is in any way whatsoever. Well, you want to talk about a convicting verse. Jesus said in the book of Luke, give to everyone who asks of you. Give to everyone who asks of you. Now, I believe there's wisdom with that verse. I've shared this story with you before. One of the things that Dawn and I like to do, we like to go to McDonald's and buy the uh, $5 uh, gift cards. We keep them with us in the vehicle. We're ever driving someplace and we see somebody along the side of the road that says, we'll work for food or something like that. We stop, we give them the $5 gift card to McDonald's. We say, we give this to you in the name of Jesus and love of Jesus. Now, there's always somebody that comes up to me after a message and says, Pastor, you know what they're going to do with that? Hope they go to McDonald's and get chicken McNuggets. Well, they're going to sell that for alcohol. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. I don't know if they're going to do that. My heart is pure. I'm going to give to everyone who asks of me. Now, if I know someone's going to use and abuse it, what do I do then? One time when Dawn and I were in Atlanta, and we were walking to the ball game. And if you go to Atlanta in the ball game, all the beggars and the homeless people stand right there with their signs, right? Well, the one guy had a sign that said, I'm not going to lie. I want money for alcohol. Now, we didn't give him any. He made it pretty clear that that's not something we're going to support. The other ones that had a sob story, I don't know what it is, but if I can support it, I'll support it. Now, some of you may disagree with me completely on that, and that is fine. This is my conviction. But I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said, better to help 99 fraudulent beggars than to turn away one honest person in need. I don't know sometimes. And so what Job is saying right here is, hey, guess what? If I see poor, I'm going to help them. I'm not going to hide my food from them so the fatherless can't eat, verse 17. He's not going to do that. I'm not going to see anybody perish for lack of clothing in verse 19. I'm not. Now, there's been times out here at church where there's been people from the community have come up to us, and they've told us some pretty good stories. Were they all true? I don't know. We try to help those that we can. Now, if we find out information that we know that it is not true and they're trying to abuse the system, then I believe at that time we're supposed to be wise as serpents and say, I'm sorry, no. But if we can help somebody, let's try to help them. It's really interesting. If you look at the people that God names specifically in the Bible, he always talks about the poor and the widows. He always does. Listen to these passages here. If you're a note taker, you can kind of write them down. James 1.27. James 1.27. 
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, we don't like to use the word religion, do we, right? I say, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But here in James, he uses the word religion. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Proverbs 3.28 says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. If you have the opportunity to help, help them. Help them. Proverbs 3.28, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. If you can help somebody, help them. Well, they're just going to take advantage of it. They're not going to return it. They're probably going to return it broken. They're probably going to misuse it. I don't know. There's a lot of probably's in there. If the Lord has told you through the Spirit, don't. And that's between you and the Lord. But if given the opportunity, let's try to help. What Job is saying here, if I saw the poor, if I saw the fatherless, if I saw the widow, I never stopped from helping them. And that's a pretty big statement to say. So we've gone through the first couple in here. We have lust and adultery, we have deceit, dishonesty, abusive authority in the poor there. Those are the first few ones that Job has said, hey, this is my case, God. I have not failed in these areas. We're going to get to some more here in a little bit. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything before we go on here? All righty, next one. Verse 24. If I have made gold my hope... Or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. This is a hard one to teach on. Greed. And it's not hard to teach because it's a difficult subject. It's tough because it's so simple. I mean, it's just so simple. Don't be greedy, right? But yet, isn't that what we all struggle with from the moment we're born? Is this idea of greed. We want the attention to be on us. And, and I just think of most of the, the training that we do with our kids at home, almost all of it has to do with the selfishness of greed. They'll be watching something on Netflix and the program will get done. And I'll have five little boys' voices say, I get to choose next. And I always say, if, you, if that's the way it's going to be, I get to choose next. But I still pick a cartoon. But, you know, we... We always want that. We want more. Last night, the Halloween alternative. We've gone through the Halloween alternative before. We know what happens with the candy. So Dawn and I, on the way, we made the rule. Here's the rule, boys. You get four pieces of candy. Four pieces of candy that day. You can eat two on the way home. You can eat two when you get home. The rest will go in your bag, and we will divvy it out there. So we made it abundantly clear. So you know what happens the whole way home? Do you think we could have five? How many have you had? I had four. Well, then what was the rule? Well, you said I could have four, but could I have five? And then Elias, the smart one. He's the smart one of the group. He's the 10-year-old. He supposedly misunderstood. <laughs> he thought he could have four at church, and then he got to go home. So Tyrus, about 45 minutes into the Halloween alternative, our three-year-old, he said, Dad, can I go to your office? I said, sure, go to my office. So we get home, and we're going through Tyrus's bag. And Dawn said, didn't Tyrus get any candy? I said, Tyrus got a bunch of candy. She goes, there's none in his bag. So Tyrus comes in the kitchen and said, Tyrus, what did you do in my office? See, Tyrus can't lie yet. He hasn't learned how to lie. That's going to happen eventually. He ate candy. How much did you have? You ever seen the three-year-old try to figure out? It just starts doing this. You know, he ran out of fingers. So I don't know how much he had. There's always a greediness in us. My boys love money. They love money. And they will, they will run out to traffic to grab a penny. 
You know, Elias, back to my oldest again. We really failed on the first. Back to, he always wants to get the biggest bill he had. He'll save all his money, and he's going to get a 20. He's going to get a 50. He's going to get a 100. And I will go into his room. He'll just be staring at it. You know, just like staring at it. See, isn't it nice that we grow up and we get out of this, right? But we don't. See, you know what the world will do to you? They'll dangle greed in front of you. They'll dangle greed. They'll dangle overtime in front of you. Words like time and a half, double time. See, they'll dangle those type of stuff in front of you. They'll convince you that, you know, that size of car or house or boat or camper, yes, that would be adequate, but you could do this. A lot of times, what do we do as human beings? We get a job that pays pretty good. And we're, we were living very comfortably before, but now we're making X amount of dollars more. So what do we do? We raise our standard of living to meet the income coming in. Because there's always one more thing we can have. One more thing. You watch the TV, and what is the TV trying to sell you? More stuff. So we work to keep what we have, and then we work to get more of what we don't need. And what Job is trying to say here is, listen, I don't make gold my hope. It's not my confidence. I'm not going to rejoice that I got it. See, this is the teaching point. None of you are sitting here right now writing this down. Wow, greed is bad. I never knew this. You know this. But we forget it. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 11, 28. He who trusts in his riches will fall. Proverbs 23, verse 5. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Isn't that funny? Sometimes the more money that's coming in, it's like, where does it go? Well, according to Proverbs 23, 5, it grows wings and flies away. Ecclesiastes says this, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11. Now we know this. We all know this. But it's fascinating when you read the parable of the sower and the seed. What is the one thing that happens that gets them? It's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. It chokes them out. Choking. I was talking to someone the other day, and please hear the conversation. It sounds really strange. Choking is not a quick way to die. Choking takes time. And the same thing happens spiritually. If you are choked out spiritually by the deceitfulness of riches, it will not happen overnight. It will be a slow spiritual death as you just start to track down the riches. And one other thing he throws in here right at the next passage, verses 26 and 28, is idolatry. If I observe the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving a judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. What he's saying is, if I would look up at the sun one day or the moon one day and start to worship that, what I'm really doing, verse 28, is I'm denying God who is above. Now, once again, aren't you glad as a society we're past idolatry, right? See, I think this is one of the biggest falsehoods that have ever hit the church. We, we always think of idolatry as a little statue sitting on the altar at home. Idolatry is anything that we place between us and our relationship with Jesus Christ. We idolize it. We make it important. Work can, can become an idol. A possession can become an idol. A spouse can become an idol. Kids can become an idol. Anything that we value more than the Lord becomes an idol. 
I can only be an effective husband, father, and pastor if I'm loving Jesus Christ first. First. The person I love most is Christ. Then dawn. Then my kids. But Christ has to be number one. And anything that I allow to get in front of that is becoming an idol. Any quick questions, comments here about the greed or the idolatry here before we move on that Job was talking about? Okay. Next one he says, verse 29, I rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, if I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. This is talking about vengeance. Job is saying, I've never wished evil upon anybody. I've never wanted bad things to happen. I've never cursed anybody like that. I've never rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me. That's a tough passage. It really is. Because there's a moment in all of us, we have these things that we call these anger fantasies. Now, they're going to say this, and then I'm going to say this. And then they're not going to know what to say back, because I'm just going to put them in their place. We have these little anger fantasies, right? Or if somebody has wronged us or said something about us, we could just so long just keep thinking about that, and then this is going to happen, and it brings a smile to our face. And for a brief moment, it just feels good. Job says, listen, I've never wished evil on anybody. I've never cursed anybody. I've never wanted somebody to have destruction. Never. In fact, I've always been hospitable. Verse 31. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? Basically, if anybody needs to eat, come to Job's tent. Verse 32. No sojourner has to lodge in the street, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. Hey, my house is always open. My tent's always open. He goes on one more time. Verse 33. If I have covered my transgression as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, he goes, I have no Sin to hide. I have no sin to hide. So Job says, I don't lust. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not deceitful. I'm not dishonest. I have not abused authority. I'm, not, I'm helping the poor. I'm not being greedy. I'm not letting idolatry get the best of me. I'm not letting vengeance control me. I'm hospitable. And I have no sin to hide. And then he sums it up by this. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. This is his final... Appeal to God, if you will. Almost imagine a court scene and Job is standing before the judge or the jury and this is his final argument that he's going to say, starting in verse uh, 35 right here. If only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. See, Job's turned the tables now. God, I have told you I am pure of all this. Now, God, you answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. God, what do you have against me? I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown. For I would tell him exactly what I have done. I would come before him like a prince. Think about that. Job is saying, God, you tell me what you have against me. I will come before you like a prince. If my land accuses me and all its furrows cry out together, or if I have stolen its crops or murdered its owners, then let the thistles grow on that land instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Then it says, Job's words are ended. That is not a good ending. That's an ending of saying, I have done nothing wrong. I have no sin to hide. Almighty, you bring your charges against me, and I will come before you like a prince. I will stand before you, and we will have this out. We have a brief interlude here from Job 32 through Job 37. And in Job 38, the Almighty decides to show up. And let's just say it doesn't go real well for Job. Now, it ends well. We know how the book of Job ends. But you see what this is building to. See, so often when we talk about Job, we talk about, here's the guy that did nothing wrong. Well, what you see in Job 31 
Well, he's starting to let pride get the best of him. For somebody to say, I will stand before the Almighty like a prince, and God, you bring your accusations against me? Oh, Job. Job, you're missing the point here. You're missing the point. So this is what we're going to end with as we get ready to partake of communion. Maybe some of these aren't an issue to you. Lust, adultery, deceit, dishonesty, abuse of authority, disregarding the poor, greedy, idolatry, vengeance, not being hospitable, hiding sin. But if you're like me, when I was going through this lesson, I could take notes and say, yeah, Lord, I, can, I could check that one. Yep, I'm struggling with that one. It's really easy on a message like this to end and walk out of here feeling condemned and beaten down. And that's never the point of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned Sunday, the purpose of the word of God is to equip us, not to whip us. And what we want here today, or as I should say this evening, is we want you to walk out of here restored in Christ Jesus. As we started out this lesson with this, Lord, search me and try me. See if there's any iniquity in me and then lead me into the way of everlasting. 1 Corinthians 11, examine ourselves before we take of the... Uh, the blood in the body. First Corinthians 9, I don't want to be disqualified. Okay, now's the time for us to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours. What areas am I struggling with? What areas do I need help with, Lord? You reveal this. You show this to me. Because I tell you, you don't want to be like Job and go before the Lord and say, I got nothing. I got nothing. I remember years ago, I was talking to a guy on the phone, and this guy had a lot of struggles in life. I've told you before, I've only met two people that have ever told me they thought they've never sinned. And this was one of the guys that he said he's never sinned. And I said, you thought, you think you've never sinned? He goes, I can't think of anything. I'm thinking, man, I got a list for you right now because I've known you for a long time. He had so convinced himself that there's nothing he needs to work on. Nothing. Job and Job 31... Hey, I'll stand before God like a prince. I got nothing to hide, God. Well, I hope that's not us tonight. But at the same token, I hope that you're not so beaten down that you can't realize the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. See, because the Bible says this in Philippians 1.6, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. God has started something in you. Let's let him keep working at this. No one has passed the point of salvation. Isn't that a beautiful thing? If you're here tonight and you have never, ever accepted Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to stop and say, I am a sinner. I am a sinner deserving of hell. But Christ has paid the price that I can't pay. He paid the bill that I can't pay. And because of that, I can now have entrance into heaven. If you're here today... Or tonight, once again, and, and maybe you're not where you're supposed to be spiritually. You're going backwards instead of forwards. Aren't you glad that today is the day to put the spiritual brakes on and say things can be different? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am yours. Let's do this. Let's examine ourselves and let's go to the Lord right now, quietly, individually, and as a body of Christ, and give our lives over to him. Lord, as we come to you now, as we get ready to partake of communion, we pray that we would have this time of self-examination. We would have this time of confession to give this to you and to stop and say, Lord, I am struggling. I am failing. I am sinning. Help me. Lord, help our eyes to always be on our spouse and not on anything else. Help us to never disregard the poor 
Help us to never chase that dollar sign or to let anything of idolatry come in between us and you. Lord, help us to always walk in honesty and not dishonest. Help us to be hospitable. Lord, help us to never hide sin, but to give it to you. Thank you for being a God of love, grace, and mercy. And I just encourage you now, just go before the throne of God and just give it all to him. All your struggles to him. Lord, it's so easy at this moment just to feel defeated. But Lord, I just think of the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. You lift us up. You're the lifter of our heads. Thank you for your love, your grace, and mercy. And as we get ready to partake of this, Lord, help us to remember what it represents you. Your body, your blood that was given for us. And we rejoice as we partake of this, Lord. We proclaim your death to you. Come in your name. Amen. All righty, we're going to go ahead and have the kids come in here. I think the older CBC kids are going to be coming in. If the guys that are helping with communion want to come forward.